In the name of God the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Good to be back. Been away for a couple of weeks. I want to talk this morning about a phrase from the Collect. The Collect are those little short prayers that uh, uh, we have uh, particularly at the, at the beginning of a service, also sometimes at the end in the, in the daily office, little literally collecting or focusing uh, prayers. I had a teacher one time who said that the, the colics were kind of like the little dot when you go to the mall and you see the map of the mall, it says you are here. It gives us the theme for the day. And there's uh, the, uh, the, the colics in the Book of Common Prayer come mostly from the pen of Thomas Cranmer. Sometimes I'm asked by people, can you sort of tell me what the Anglican way, uh, the, the Episcopal Church stands in the Anglican tradition, they come to our church from some other church, you know, what's the approach to Christianity here? And I'll give them a book of common prayer, and I'll take a bookmark, and I'll put the bookmark in the place where the collects start, and I'll say, read, read through the collects. If you read through the collects, you'll get a pretty good idea of what the ethos is, of what the spirit is, of what the, the genius of, of Anglicanism is. Now, most of these collects, they come from the pen of Thomas Cranmer. Many of them are Cranmer's translations of, of the ancient prayers of the church, said in the liturgy from time out of mind. Um, some he's tweaked a little bit, and uh, um, some, are, some are his own composition, all of them in his remarkable prose that together with Shakespeare and King James have uh, done so much to mold the English language such that the beneficiary of that tradition, let's say Abraham Lincoln, can come up with things like uh, with malice towards none and charity towards all. All of this work, this liturgical genius of Thomas Cranmer and his first prayer books, all of this work is done from a certain theological point of view, a certain perspective. Um, there's a governing principle. And the governing principle of the Book of Common Prayer is the governing principle of St. Paul's preaching, and really the governing principle of the whole New Testament. We've been ringing the changes or hearing the changes rung on this theme all summer long as we've read through the letter to the Romans. And it is summarized in a phrase from the letter to the Galatians that we are saved by grace through faith. The message of the Book of Common Prayer is the message of the New Testament. It's the message of grace. That we're saved, what does that mean? That, well, we need to be made right with God. Our relationship with God needs to be healed. Our relationship with each other needs to be healed. How does that happen? Is there a set of tasks? And when the tasks are performed completely and adequately and at the right level of accomplishment, then we get saved. 
How is it that we get made right with God? And how is it that we get made right with each other? How is it that our relationship with God gets healed and our relationship with each other gets healed? How is it that we come back into the dignity of the human life for which we were made and which was lost for us and which needs to be regained and refound? How does it happen? Is it by praying enough? Is it by doing enough works of charity? Is it by one of the many anxious schemes of moral perfection that are on offer in our time? We're saved, St. Paul says, summarizing the teaching of Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith. Um, this, um, when it is grasped, it produces a tremendous sense of gratitude in the human heart. And the aim of Cranmer's prayer book, the aim of his organization and of his scheme and of his prayer writing and his laying out of the liturgy was to hammer again and again into our hearts the immense and undeserved love of God towards us in the cross of Jesus Christ the Lord. And grasping this undeserved and superabundant love, this costly love, grasping this costly love in faith, reaching out and making it our own, there wells up in our hearts uh, humility and gratitude and love. And in the words of the Swiss theologian Emil Brunner, this creates in us a new relationship with God, which is worship, and a new relationship with our neighbor, which is love. We're saved by grace. We don't deserve God's mercy. We don't deserve God's forgiveness. We don't deserve God's healing and restoration, but that is God's free gift to us in Jesus Christ, the Lord. And this gratitude wells up in our hearts and it wells up and it overflows in acts of practical love. It wells and overflows in, 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 uh, in acts of worship and praise, and it overflows in acts of practical love. Emil Brunner says, this is the source of the true relationship with God, which is worship, and the true relationship with our neighbors, which is love. And this love overflows and is so abundant that it extends even to the enemy. Um, the famous liberation theologian Gustavo Gutierrez once said, in order to be a Christian, you have to have two enemies, because Jesus says, love your enemies. Why love of the enemy? This astonished me when I was a young man and I finally came to understand it. Why the love of the enemy? Why is that so important for Christians? Why is the gratitude and humility that's in our heart supposed to f overflow us to such a degree that it even extends to our enemies? Why is that? Uh, 
It was astonishing to me when I came to understand that this is because this is how God treats his enemies. All of us who are God-forgetting, God-hostile, God-rebellious, how does God treat his enemies? How does he put them in their, in their place? How does he vanquish them? Is it by a fiat? Is it by a divine display of power? At this point, one of the ancient Roman poets writing about one of the ancient Roman gods would show lightning coming down from heaven. Well, lightning does come down from heaven, the lightning of the cross. And it is an overwhelming display of power. But in the eyes of the world, it looks frail and weak. But to us who are being saved, it's the wisdom of God and the power of God. So, when we grasp in faith the disproportion between what we deserve and what God gives, when we grasp that in faith, I'm reminded in the Old Testament of how God deals with the children of Israel in the desert. He's rescued them from slavery. He has defeated the strongest imperial army in the ancient world on their behalf and liberated them and set them on the path to a, a new and free life. And on the way, they're grumbling because there's no meat. Again, the Roman poet would have lightning coming down from heaven, but how does God deal with this? He showers them with quail. And so do we, who are God-forgetting, God-rebellious, even God-hating. God showers. Horace Bushnell, the 19th century American theologian, says that the love of God, the sacrificial love of God that is poured out in the cross is a great Niagara washing away our sins, healing the relationship between us and God and healing the relationship with our neighbor. We're saved by grace through faith. And when we apprehend this, when it really comes into our heart, there wells up in our heart humility, love, gratitude, patience, peace. Now, all of this is what Krantmer means by true religion. He was worried in his day that the Christians of his day had come to believe that they would earn somehow their salvation, that they would save themselves by their own good works. And so he prayed that God would increase in us true religion, this faith, this apprehension of the costly and undeserved and powerful love of God, which comes at the cost of the cross, which triumphs in the resurrection, which is communicated to us by the Holy Spirit and is available to us in the ordinary means of grace, prayers, the scriptures, the sacraments, and which blossoms in good works that come from a grateful and a humble heart.
All of this is what Cranmer means by true religion, and it is itself a gift. And so he prays in this collect that the gift of true religion would be welled up in us. Now, some people will, uh, will object to the phrase true religion. How can one religion be true? Aren't all the religions, some will say, equally true and equally false? And the important thing, surely, is to have a religion that works for me, some will say. Well, it's a free country, and you can do this, and we do do it. I do it. We all do it. We all uh, sort of pick and choose and make our own religion to suit ourselves and to work for us. We have to face what the Bible calls this, and what the Bible calls this is idolatry. And we have to face what the Bible calls the service of the idols. The Bible calls the service of the idols prostitution and slavery. The service of the idols, where we have a religion where we don't really need, stand in need of the Savior. And John Calvin says that the human heart is a constant factory of idols. The religion that we make for ourselves is, is an idol, and the service of the idols is always cruel. It's always an, an, an unending and unattainable works righteousness. It's always a cruel and oppressive regime. It's always making bricks without straw, wetted with your own blood, and sooner or later, the blood of your children and the blood of your neighbors. Shows up in all kinds of ways. I'll give just one example. In our, in our politics, um, it's not a secret, I think, that our, the American politics are immensely polarized at the present moment. Politics has almost entirely ceased to become um, a conversation amongst people of goodwill seeking for solutions to the common problems of the civic life and has become a false religion by which we justify ourselves. Remember that story about, uh, that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the publican that go down to the temple and the Pharisee says, I thank ye God, I'm not like this other person over here, unrighteous in every way. And the publican wouldn't look up and just beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one goes down justified? To the degree that our politics become the means by which we establish our righteousness in comparison to them over there, just so our politics will be a place where reason and argument and negotiation are virtually impossible. Patience, humility, persuasion, and love of the enemy will be pushed out, and pride, bullying, and violence will take its place. We need true religion. We need the true religion that tells us that we all stand equally in need of God's decisive act of love to make us right with him and right with each other. We all 
stand in need of the gift that the Savior comes to give us at great cost and with great power, the gift of a true life with God, which is worship, and a true life with each other, which is love. All of this comes from the wellspring of true religion, the humility and gratitude and love that wells up as we grasp in faith God's superabundant and unmerited love towards us in Jesus Christ the Lord. We need this as we need air and as we need food. We need this. And so we come week by week that true religion might be renewed in us and we might find this true life with God and this true life with each other. In the name of God the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.